Good morning or evening. Uh, my name is Phil Pearson, and I guess I've become a bit of a guest speaker here at St. Peter's. Uh, during this time of social distancing and isolation, I hope that you find peace and joy in the midst of this, and that you know you're not alone, and that this community can be part of that presence. As a community, we've been exploring what is known as the I Am Statements, a series of seven statements in the book of John in which Jesus says he is different things. He says things like he's the light, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life. And each statement helps us to better understand who Jesus is. And in learning this, we find out not just who Jesus is, but what the Christian life is about and how the world changes. Today, I get the opportunity to speak on one of the I am statements, but uh, I cheated a little bit and I'm not speaking on one of the seven. Instead, I'm going to speak on an eighth statement, one that's kind of left out in the seven in that Jesus doesn't actually say he is something. He simply says he is. He provides a name, a name packed with meaning, filled with power, really a name like all names, but even greater. A name that changes the world, you could say. The passage that we're in picks up in the middle of a conversation uh, that Jesus is having with religious leaders and teachers in Jerusalem in the temple after a festival called the Festival of Booths takes place. Uh, Taya spoke about it a number of weeks ago. We're going to talk about the context a little bit more, but let me dive right in. John 8, verse 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my command will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say whoever obeys your words will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your own, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, there's a lot going on here, and in order to talk about this, we're going to talk about four things. We're going to talk about the name that Jesus invokes, the claim that he's making, the implications of this, and the responses of the crowd. This passage begins with kind of an odd interaction, right? These religious leaders are trying to trip Jesus up. They give him two options. Either you're demon-possessed or you're a Samaritan. And to them, it's saying, essentially pick the lesser of two evils. But either way, you can't be trusted. You're not welcomed here in this place. But Jesus is a good arguer, and he goes with option C. Clearly, I'm not possessed by a demon. And by asking that, you're dishonoring me. 
And then he gives this bold statement. Whoever obeys my words will never see death. And this, of course, is, is a loaded statement and most likely harkens back to the type of death spoken about in Genesis, not a physical death, but a spiritual death. And the religious leaders, they hear this and they just miss the point, so they attack again. Now we know you're demon-possessed because the founder of our faith, Abraham, our father, and all the prophets have died. So how could you possibly think you're better than them? And so they ask outright, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to say this? Really a, a great question to ask Jesus. But he, once again, sidesteps his response for a moment and he says, Abraham was looking forwards towards him. When God first made the promise to Abraham all those years ago, he said that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. And Jesus is saying that he is the blessing that God promised Abraham. To which the crowds, missing the point again, give this hyperbolic statement. You're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham, which is ridiculous because Abraham was as far away from Jesus as Jesus is from us. And so Jesus does something shocking. He turns the statement around one more time, and he says, before Abraham was born, I am. It would seem at a first reading he's making a grammatical error or that the translators made a mistake, but neither of those things is happening. Jesus, in playing with the grammar, invokes the very name of God, the personal name of God that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. In the book of Exodus, when the Hebrew people are slaves and God is preparing to lead them out, he chooses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And him and Moses have this back and forth at the burning bush. And then finally Moses relents, fine, I'll do it. I'll lead your people out of Egypt. But suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You see, Moses is trying to get God's name because up until this time in Hebrew scriptures, God hasn't been named. He's been addressed with titles, titles like Elohim or Adonai, things like we would say Lord or God. But there are ways about speaking about God and not saying his name. And Moses, to Moses, this is so important because he's coming out of a land where names are so vital to the gods. They reveal who those gods are and what they're about. Names like Osiris, which meant mighty and powerful, or Horus, the one who is above. And as Moses is encountering God for the first time, he's trying to figure out, who is this God? So he asks the question, what is your name? And God responds, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. God's kind of being like Jesus in that he plays with the question to some extent. Moses is looking for a name, a static noun that he can bring back and convince the Hebrew people and learn what this God is about. But God doesn't give a name in the traditional sense. He doesn't give a noun or a static word. He gives a verb. He uses the personal Hebrew verb to be translated I am, or I am that I am. I will be who I will be. I exist because I exist. 
I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in Christ's plays in 10,000 places. He says this, is the name purposely enigmatic, revelational, but not telling everything, disclosing intimacy, personal presence, but preserving mystery, forbidding possession and control? I think so. The name is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, you could say. There's so much to this word, to this name, and people have wrestled with it for over 2,000 years, for 3,000 years at this point. At its simplest, we can understand it to be he exists, he is, he was never born, never made, he is in all, before all, and will be after all. He's the unmade maker, the unmoved mover he is. And these words, I am, become the personal name of God throughout Scripture. In your Bible, if you ever see the word Lord in all capitals, that's referring to this name, I am. It's a nod to the name revealed to Moses. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's invoking the very name of God. If you're not convinced, then look at the response of the crowd really quick. The religious leaders in the crowd, they pick up rocks to stone him to death. It was the law that if someone committed this kind of blasphemy, they were to be killed. The fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain. The Hebrew people believed it so much they wouldn't say it. If they saw it written down, they would say Adonai. They would say Yahweh. They treated it with such reverence. The name of the Lord was revered. It was feared. And so when the crowd hears Jesus say, I am, they know exactly what he's implying. They ask the question, who do you think you are? And Jesus responds, I am God. I am the creator of all things. I was before Abraham. To John, the author of the book, it points back to his opening poem. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When the author looks at this moment, he sees it so clearly. Jesus is implying something so insane. He is God. Which leads us to talk about the implications because they are many, they are earth-shattering, they are reality-bending. It changes everything if Jesus' words are true. And to me, it changes two major things. First, it changes how we understand Jesus. And second, maybe more importantly, it, under, it, it changes how we see God. First, how does it change how we understand and see Jesus? In our culture and really throughout most of history, we as a society have tried to put Jesus to be nothing more than a moral teacher or a religious leader. We've tried to put him on the same shelf as Gandhi or Muhammad or maybe Oprah Winfrey at times. We can agree that he made good moral claims, love your neighbor as yourself, forgive people, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. But that's all we want him to be. Jesus, that's a teacher, is, is safe and not disruptive. Because moral teachers offer advice and guidance, and religious leaders offer rules for gaining divine favor or maybe making it to heaven, and prophets point towards God. They uproot the way they think, but Jesus comes and points at himself. If you try to take all the times that Jesus is speaking about himself throughout the Gospels, you're left with very little 
power in his words. As you begin studying Jesus' teachings, you can't get away from the fact that he's convinced he's different than anyone else. So first it changes how we see Jesus. He's not a prophet, a teacher, or a religious leader, or a sage. He believes he's God. And if it's true, it changes how we see and interact with God. I see this in a couple of different ways. First being, God was here. God was not, as the agnostics believe, unknowable. He is not, as the deists believe, left the building. He's fully and totally imminent to the point of being touched, held, and felt. John describes it as God taking on flesh, becoming incarnated in meat. When we look at Jesus, we see God present. In Jesus, we see God weep over death. In Jesus, we see God bring in the outcast, the last and the least. In Jesus, we see God forgive his enemies. In Jesus, we see God love. And in Jesus, we see God defeat death. The good news of Jesus, even before the cross and the resurrection, is God came here. In Jesus, the I am is fully here. God is made known. And this is amazing and incredible and scandalous. A number of years ago, a pastor introduced me to an incredible and shocking work of art. It's by a devout Catholic artist named Andreas Serrano. It's called Piss Christ. And what Serrano did to make this piece was take a clear glass tank and fill it over time with his own urine. And then he took the Catholic crucifix and submerged it into the bucket. He photographed it and put it on display. He heavily saturated it and it was shown in museums. It was heavily criticized. People came in and tried to break it. And in one situation, one person actually managed to break the glass of the image. Now realize this, in no way am I trying to be crude or offensive or blasphemous. And neither was the artist. He says this about Piss Christ. He says, I had no idea it would get the attention it did, since I meant neither blasphemy nor offense. I've been a Catholic all my life. I'm a follower of Christ. And this shocking piece of art, in its crude and potentially offensive nature, captures the truth of the Incarnation. The divine, the mysterious, the unknowable, the pure, the sacred, the holy, the set apart, the heavenly, becomes a man. This is how God reveals himself to us. Think of it this way. In the Ten Commandments, God instructs his people to not make graven images or icons of God. This command will set them apart from other religious communities around them in that they used iconography to express what their gods were about. But the Jewish people had none of that. And to to some extent, God was greatly mysterious. In the Old Testament, we get metaphors of what God is like. God is a lion. He's like thunder. We get these images of power and strength, of something holy and set apart. But then, the first image of God we get, provided by God himself, is a baby crying at his mother's breast. It's a man who humbly and quietly heals people of the disease by touching them. 
It's a man who teaches us to give up power and violence. It's a man who dies on a cross. In Jesus, if Jesus' words are true, God completely changes our understanding of himself. We don't see a God of power and of strength, but God reveals himself in weakness and frailty. If this upsets you, maybe you don't see the full scandal of Jesus yet. Maybe the weight of his skin and bones hasn't yet sunk in, but if you believe that Jesus is nothing, uh, but if you believe that Jesus is not a fairy tale or a myth, then he has to be a man that bled and peed. If Jesus' claim is true, then God, the Almighty, the Holy, the set-apart, the divine, chooses to reveal himself in weakness, in the frailty of a man's bones. It forces us to look at and see God differently. I'll ask it this way. Is your image of God a God who chases after power? Is your image of God a God of hate, violence, or vengeance? Is your image of God a God that doesn't care what happens here on earth? Because in Jesus, God breaks all those images. God completely gives up his power. He leads us to forgive 70 times 7. He asks us to be humiliated, to turn the other cheek, and he himself is humiliated. Maybe you believe in a God of love. Great, but Jesus changes what love looks like. It's not simply the happy feels. It's not simply the the warm tinglys. It's self-sacrifice and dying to oneself for the sake of others. The image of God we get by all of our our society's standards is a weakling, yet Jesus becomes the very lens through which we see God. Jesus becomes the lens through which we understand and know God. He forces all of our images, all of our theologies, all of our notions of God to be weighed and judged against himself. And if they don't line up, they need to fall in line. Because Jesus reveals God in his truest image. In Jesus, the divine mystery is made known. And for 2,000 years, we've been wrestling with this. Not always doing the best job, but trying to truly see God for who he shows himself to be. Which leads us to the response of the crowd one more time. After Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to kill him. Jesus flees the temple. In a way, you could say they're not doing the wrong thing. They're doing exactly as the law commanded. I mean, if I got got up on the sermon and I said, hello, my name is Phil Pearson. I am God in flesh. You would think me insane. Parker would cut the feed. Alistair or Rob would come over, put their hand on my shoulder, bring me to their car and say, hey, we're going to bring you to someone to talk about these delusions you're having. And I would never be invited to speak again. These crowds are convinced he's a liar maybe even insane, and so they pick up rocks to stone him. It could be something different. It could be that they believed him and they see him as a direct threat, but I think it's the former. But in either way, Jesus leaves the temple. I love the way one commentator puts it. He says, 
I might say that the last part of John 8, verse 59, is the saddest text in the Bible. Jesus leaves the temple. The Son of God, whom, who through the whole universe was made, comes to his own, should have been the object of worship. He came to fulfill the whole law. He came to be among God's people, and he has no place in the temple dedicated to the God who sent him. Like I said at the beginning, remember, John is an artist, and he places this narrative at the very end of the Feast of Tabernacles, a time in which the people remembered being taken out of Egypt and living in the wilderness when God was with them. But they totally miss Jesus in God with them. But there's another response to when Jesus says, he is the I am. At his betrayal, in John 18, verse 3 to 6, it says this. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus uses the same term, I am. And at this, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. They were literally awestruck, filled with wonder and horror at the claim Jesus is making. They feel the power of his weight and words and are knocked off their feet. I'll end with this quote from C.S. Lewis, which captures exactly what I'm trying to say. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us open to that, and he does not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic or a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, God, let us see you for who you truly reveal yourself to be. Not the images we make up in our minds, but the true God of love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Let us always wrestle with the mystery of you and your son, Jesus, here among us. Let us know in our loneliness, our isolation, that you have not abandoned us, but instead that you make your home with us that you have truly taken on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And let us follow your path of love and be your presence to the people around us. Amen.